0: Good. Very nice to be here. Very good to see you all. I've been very much looking forward to today. Uh, The the kind of inspiration for this talk uh, comes from a retreat I did in the summer. I was doing a solitary retreat. And on that retreat, I recited the three Pure Land Sutras. And there was just a short passage in one of those sutras which really... Caught my attention, really interested me. So I've been thinking about it, and uh, I offered to give a talk on some of my reflections. But before I talk about that, can you hear me if I speak like that? You okay? Okay. Um, Before I talk about the the actual passage, I need to give you a bit of background. Uh, I mentioned the Pure Land Sutras, so I need to say just a little bit about those as background. But first, even before I talk about the Pure Land Sutras, (laughs) I need to talk about the Pure Land, because the Pure Land Sutras is about the the Pure Land, so I need to talk about that. So the idea of the Pure Land um, comes really from Buddhist cosmology, and in Buddhist cosmology, there are innumerable, countless world systems throughout space. A world system is... You can't. There's no real exact equivalent in our modern Western way of understanding the universe. Um, some people say a world system is a galaxy. Some some people say a world system is a universe. But it's a very, very big. You can't even call it a place, can you? Very big space. And in in Mahayana Buddhism, there are three types of uh, world system. There's a world, there are world systems out there that have no Buddha. There are world systems that have a Buddha, but they're impure Buddha fields. So, uh, I'll tell you about that in a minute. And there are pure Buddha fields. A uh, Buddha field is a world system with a, with a Buddha in it. So, um, the, the world systems that are impure with the Buddha fields that are impure there's a Buddha there teaching the Dharma but um, there is still um, suffering in that world system there's still old age disease death sorrow lamentation despair and grief all that happens in 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 an impure Buddha world there's also happiness and joy and wonder and so on, but there, is, there are the two sides. That's why it's impure. There's suffering and there's also pleasure. A pure Buddha field is a, is a Buddha field where the Buddha teaches and there is no suffering. Everyone is completely happy because they're listening to the Dharma and practicing the Dharma. So there's no suffering, there's no old age, there's no disease. I was going to say there's no death but I'm not quite sure about that but there's no suffering so um, this is a, uh, you can take this as a mythical idea rather than the literal truth you could say that the, the idea of um, pure lands and impure lands are symbolic so what is a pure land symbolic of? what does it symbolise? In another text, another Mahayana text called the Vimlakirti Nirdesha, somebody asks Vimlakirti, "What is the purification of a Buddha field? How do you purify a Buddha field?" And um, Vimlakirti answers, "A Buddha field is a field of living beings. Why so? A bodhisattva embraces a Buddha field to the same extent." that he causes the development of living beings so a buddha field isn't so much a place with planets and trees and uh, ground and sky and so on really the essence of a buddha field are living beings it's the living beings that make a buddha field so the pure land is a myth symbolizing It symbolises spiritual community. You could even say, taking the three kinds of um, world systems, the world system with no Buddha, the impure Buddha field and the pure Buddha field, you could say that those three world systems symbolises three places or states that we have in this world. A Buddha field with no, uh, sorry, uh, a world system with no Buddha symbolises a place or a person with no Dharma with no Buddhist teachings at all they're not interested in anything higher an impure Buddha field you could say symbolises a place or a person let's say a place where there is the Dharma where the Buddha does teach and some people practice the Dharma and some people don't so it's impure you could also say it represents a kind of divided person. Someone who practices as dharma, who's really interested in the dharma, but they're also interested in other things, things that are not the dharma. So there's a kind of pull towards the dharma. But there's also a pull towards other things. So that's, you could say, an impure Buddha field. A pure Buddha field represents a place where everyone is just completely interested in the dharma. They're just not interested in anything else or it's a person whose only interest is in the Dharma. They're just not interested in CDs and CD Walkmans and TVs and computers and mobile phones. They're just not interested in those things. They just want to practice the Dharma. So um, that's what a Pure Land is. Now, Pure Land Buddhism is based on a particular Pure Land myth. The Pure Land of the Buddha Amitabha. This Buddha figure here is actually Amitabha. The Buddha of boundless light or boundless radiance. Now, Pure Land Buddhism is very big in Japan. Uh, Lots and lots of people in Japan practice Pure Land Buddhism. And there's a Japanese Pure Land Buddhist, Dr Haneda, uh, in a talk that he gave called What is the Pure Land? he said this, and I'm going to quote it to you because it's very, very good, I think. People say various things about the Pure Land, but could there be any greater birth in the Pure Land than the fact that we are now sitting and learning the Dharma together? This place where we are listening to the Dharma together is the Pure Land. Our being allowed to be part of this place, of this Sangha, is birth in the Pure Land. Do you think you can have anything greater in this life than the fact that you are listening to the Dharma as a member of the Sangha? Some people may speak about the wonderful things to be obtained in the Pure Land after death, but those things are nothing but projections of human greed. The fact that we are privileged to be part of the Sangha is our liberation, is our birth in the Pure Land. So, I'm going to be talking about the Pure Land as a symbol of spiritual community, a symbol of Sangha. And I'm going to be looking at a particular passage from one of the three Pure Land Sutras. i better just tell you what these sutras are. A sutra is a book or a text. And there are, as I say, three Pure Land Sutras. There's the Sukhavadi Sutra, that is to say the short one. I'll just tell you what that means. Sukhavati means the land of bliss or the happy land. Vyuha is magnificent array. So it's the magnificent array of the happy land. This, that's the shorter one. Then there's the longer Sukhavati Vyuha Sutra. And then the third one is the Amitaya Dhyana Sutra or the visualisation of Amitabha, the Buddha. And the passage that interested me is from the longer Sutra. So in the Sutra, in both of them actually, there's a discussion of Amitabha's light or his radiance, his life and his assembly or his sangha, spiritual community. And it says in the text, this particular passage that interested me, it says that all three are boundless or measureless or limitless Um, the word for boundless is amita so amitabha um, the Buddha amitabha abha means light so amita abha boundless light or boundless radiance abha means splendor light means to shine or to blaze towards to irradiate, to illumine. So you could say that Amitabha means limitless radiance. So here's what the longer Sukhavadi Sutra says. And his light is immeasurable, so that it's not easy to grasp either its limits or its full measurement. There is no way of formulating a comparison so that one could grasp the measure of the light of the Buddha Amitabha. I'm very tempted to read on because it's wonderful. I'll just read a little bit. I've, I've got it all here, but it's so good I couldn't stop typing. That is why he's called Amitabha, measureless light. That is why he is called measureless radiance, measureless splendor, interminable radiance, unimpeded radiance, unobstructed radiance. It just goes on and on like this for a long, long time. Uh, ever blazing radiance, unimpeded, oh, I said that haven't I? Radiance of heavenly gems, coloured radiance of unobstructed light rays. It just goes on and on, it's fantastic. And radiance outshining all radiance. That's his light. Then, life, he has boundless life. So his name is Amitaias, Ias is life. So he's Amita, boundless, measureless, life. And the measure of the lifespan of the blessed Amitabha is immeasurable. So that it's not easy to grasp its measure whether one thinks of it as so many cosmic ages so many hundreds of cosmic ages, thousands of cosmic ages, millions hundreds of millions, thousands of millions, hundreds of thousands of millions of billions of cosmic ages. How long is a cosmic age? A cosmic age is a fantastically long period of time which you just can't imagine. It's billions of years. It's the period of time, so the texts tell us, it would take for a mountain to wear down if a goddess came along every hundred years and rubbed a piece of silk against it. So just imagine that if you can. Okay. Then he's assembly is boundless is sangha and the assembly of disciples of the Buddha Amitabha is measureless so that it is not easy to grasp its measure no matter how one thinks of the assembly whether one thinks of it as composed of so many millions of disciples so many hundreds of millions of disciples thousands of millions hundreds of thousands of millions billions, trillions, quadrillions quintillions so many, it goes on and on like this. An inconceivable number of disciples. So, that's the passage I'm interested in, I'm going to talk about this evening. But before I do that, I just want to say that Amitā is boundless. The Pure Land is boundless. Now, the Pure Land Sutras are very interested in this idea of boundlessness. But they're also very interested, almost preoccupied, with its opposite of confinement, restriction. For instance, the beginning of the Amitayurdhiana Sutra begins with the story of the king Bimbisara, who is confined in a dungeon, seven walls thick. Compare that with Sukhavati, which. Is enclosed by seven rows of golden jewelled railings and seven rows of palm trees, all decked with nets of tinkling bells. So there's this sense of enclosure. And in the longer Sukhavati view Sutra, there are two kinds of beings who are reborn in the Pure Land. There's those who are born within a, within the, a closed lotus, so they're, they're enclosed in this lotus for 500 years because of doubt. Yeah, Doubt encloses them in this lotus. In that lotus, they're having a great time. They play, sport, enjoy themselves just like gods, but they're deprived of seeing the Buddha and the Bodhisattvas and of hearing and speaking about the Dharma. So, for 500 years, although they're having a wonderful time, there's this sense of enclosure, confinement. And then there are those born on, they're born cross legged on open lotuses, on the calyxes of open lotuses. And they're born like that because of faith. And they give an analogy as well as that, the text gives an analogy of a prince who has misbehaved. And the king imprisons him in a wonderful palace. And it describes the palace. It's fantastic. You would love to live there. It's gold and jewels everywhere and silks hanging from the ceiling and wonderful aromas and plush carpets and the lot. Fabulous place to live. But they're chained with golden chains. Otherwise, they're living in the height of luxury, eating delicious food. And the Buddha says... What do you think? He's talking to somebody called Ajita. He says, what do you think? Would he relish that food or feel any satisfaction from it? And somebody answers, no, indeed. On the contrary, he would only wish for release from there. So there's this idea that even though you've got everything, there's still this sense of confinement, of being somehow hemmed in. There's a Chinese version that what what I've been quoting to you so far is the Sanskrit version of the sutra. There's a Chinese version as well, which combines these images of being born in a lotus and being imprisoned in a palace. And what the Chinese version says is that those with doubt are born in the pure land in palaces. And these palaces can fly wherever you want them to. So flying palaces. And they can go wherever they want in the Pure Land. They've got this kind of freedom to go everywhere. But no matter how much freedom they've got to go around in the palace, they're still enclosed in this palace. They can't get out. So it's a bit like being in a really big car. You know when you're in a car and you're going, you somehow, you're watching the scenery go past, but you somehow feel somehow cut off from it, don't you? You're not really part of it. You feel like you're in a bubble. So these palaces like really big, luxurious bubbles. And then one of the early Chinese pure land teachers, Tan Luan, he says that the pure land is boundless because Amitabha saw that in this world, our world, though, I'm quoting here, though there were palaces, he observed that they were cramped. Though there were fields he saw that they were small and filthy. Though one could find roads, they were narrow. Mountains and rivers created barriers and countries were split into sections. So there's this sense of somehow being enclosed, confined. Therefore, Sukhavati is boundless. The pure land is boundless. You've got complete freedom to move around faith in pure land is boundlessness it's freedom now you might be thinking wait a minute it's sukhavati is boundless but i just said it's enclosed by seven railings didn't i in seven rows of palm trees so how can it be boundless and enclosed at the same time this is one of the things i really like about the pure land sutras There's this teaching um, from another Mahayana school, the Perfection of Wisdom school, that talks about emptiness and form. Form is only emptiness, and emptiness only form. You can't have emptiness outside of form, and you can't have form outside of emptiness. And it seems to me this idea of the Pure Land being enclosed but boundless at the same time is a kind of pictorial representation of this idea of freedom within boundaries. Okay, so you've got Amitabha's boundless light, his boundless life, and his boundless assembly. You could say that this refers to the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, the three jewels. So boundless life, boundless lifespan. In other words, it never ends. In other words, it must be eternal. You get this idea in another Mahayana Sutra, the uh, Sadama Pundarika, the White Lotus Sutra. But we shouldn't take the idea of boundless life, eternal life literally, I think. Eternal here doesn't really mean an incredibly long time. I know the text says it's an incredibly long time, unimaginably long. I think what it really means is it's it's outside the category of time. It's timeless. Amita means Boundless, limitless, measureless. And I've been talking about it so far as being so big, so vast, so immense that you can't measure it. But it also means, and I look this up in the dictionary, without a certain measure. In other words, it's unmeasurable. Not because it's really big, but because it's unquantifiable. It's inconceivable. It's unimaginable. You can't put it into a category. You can't put it into a class. It's outside of all those kind of categories of thought. A friend of mine, Nagapriya, came to see me this weekend, and he was talking. We were talking about some Chinese, um, Chinese and Korean Buddhist teachers, and he was talking about a. Uh, uh, Chinese hermit called Li Tongjuan, who spent most of his life writing a commentary on another sutra the Avatamsaka Sutra and then later on this Korean called Chinul got really interested in Li, Li Tongzuan's uh, writings and what he said about him was that his writings were not descriptive but they were transformative and I thought this was just a great idea They were not descriptive but transformative. And I thought, ah, that's what the Pure Land Sutras are, actually. They seem to be a description of the the Pure Land, but actually they're not really. It's not really that kind of language. What happens is when you read them, if you're really open to them, you become transformed. Tan Wan, in fact, said that you shouldn't really call it the Pure Land, you should call it the Purifying Land. Because when you come into contact with it, you become purified. And that's what happens when you read the Pure Land texts. You transform. Yeah, so it's not really a description. It's a way of changing you. So when the text says something like measureless life, it's an incredibly long, long period, so far that you can't really imagine that period of time. It's trying to put you into the state of boundlessness. And it does this by multiplying all our categories to the nth degree. Some people don't like this, they find it funny and they take the, the mickey out of it, you know, millions of billions of naitis of coaches of calipers, and they start laughing. But actually, if you take it seriously and you really try to understand what they're saying, it can catapult you out of your measuring quantifying mind and you get into a different state so it multiplies all our categories but we're not supposed to take those multiplications literally it's trying to get another truth to the point where we just can't take anymore where we just can't conceive can't imagine what the sutra is trying to t- tell us so boundless life measureless life doesn't mean a very 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 long time It means eternal Buddhahood. It means Buddhahood eternally being attained. It's always possible. There's no place or time where it's not possible to attain Buddhahood. And then there's boundless light or limitless radiance. And this, I think, is the Dharma. Um, The Dharma illumines. It makes clear and that's why Amitabha's light outshines the sun and moon. That's one of the things I didn't read to you earlier. I censored that out of my talk. But it, it outshines the sun and moon. Tan Wan, let's go back to Tan Wan. He says, Amitabha's light is the image of his wisdom. And it's not like the pearly brightness of the sun or the moon, which is only able to disperse the darkness of an empty cave. Amitabha's light shines throughout it's going to say the whole universe, but it's much more than that. Through every conceivable universe, every single world system, the light is shining outwards. In other words, it's always possible to change, it's always possible to grow and develop, no matter where you are. I've been reading William James's um, Varieties of Religious Experience recently, and nearly all the religious experiences that he describes or that people describe for themselves involve light. And it's not just metaphorical light. It's actual light. They actually see the world as being brighter during and after their religious experience than they did before. It's almost like light enters their life. And, of course, enlightenment. Enlightenment. It's to do with making... There's a phrase, isn't there, sometimes you get in the early texts where somebody has an insight experience and he says something along the lines or she says something like... Um, it's as if a light just came on and I saw things that I never saw before and then there's boundless assembly or boundless sangha, limitless sangha so what does this mean? and this was the particular bit I was interested in because I've known for years about Amitabha and his boundless light and his boundless life but when I read this it was as if I'd read it for the first time and I thought oh His sangha, his assembly, is boundless too. What can that mean? What's the significance of this? And first, the first thing that came to me was a kind of disappointment. It was a disappointing answer. I thought, oh, is that all? And it was that numbers, lots and lots of numbers. In other words, I thought, oh, this is just propaganda for the for the for these sutras. The more disciples you have, the greater you must be as a teacher kind of thing. So um, the greater the Buddha, if the Buddha's limitless, then his assembly must be limitless. And with that answer, I was disappointed and I thought, surely there must be more than this meaning. There must be a deeper meaning somehow. So I began to think about it. So in early Buddhism, in Pali Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, There are a set of meditations called the Anusatis. There are six of them. Sometimes there are ten, but I'm just going to mention the six now. Anusati. So sati means mindfulness. And anu means with. So with mindfulness. And usually Anusati is translated as recollection or contemplation or meditation. So there's six recollections or contemplations. And you contemplate one of six things. You contemplate the Buddha, that's one, the Dharma, the Sangha, or you contemplate ethics or generosity or the Devas. That's a funny one stick on the end, isn't it? But anyway, those are the six Anusatis. And you meditate on each one. And how do you do this? Well, there's a manual in our library of how to do this. Well, it's part of a really big manual called The Path of Purification by someone called Buddha Gosha. But, for instance, in the, the, uh, if you were going to do the Buddha Anusati, the Anusati, the recollection of the Buddha, you would recollect his qualities. And there's actually um, a set meditation for this. There are a number of qualities. And some of you will, will know this from how many of you chant the Tirat Narandana? Oh, not many of you. Oh, well. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Oh, well. <laughs> anyway, so, the Tiratnavandana is a chant that is made up of recollecting the qualities of first the Buddha, then the Dharma, then the Sangha. So this is exactly how you do it. You just recollect their qualities. You could see, I think, if you come back to the Sukhavati Sutra and these three things limitless life, limitless light, limitless sangha you could say that these are anusatis not in the sense of recollecting the various qualities of the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha which is kind of conceptual but of visualising them, imagining them let me just quote you a con- um, uh, something from the Amitaya Dhyana Sutra this is contemplation 8 where you start contemplating the Buddha visualising the Buddha He says when you contemplate a Buddha, your mind produces the Buddha's image and is itself the Buddha. So when you contemplate a Buddha, your mind becomes the Buddha. You become the Buddha. So when we contemplate the assembly in the Pure Land, the Sangha, this limitless assembly, if we were to do that, our mind would produce the sangha's image and would itself become the sangha. But we mustn't think of this process as just involving only the mind or only sights and images, visualisations. The practices in the Pure Land texts involve the whole of you, sight, mind, sound, feelings, the body. I'll just quote you something from the shortest Sukhavati Vihara Sutra. A sweet and enrapturing sound proceeds from those rows of palm trees and those nets of tinkling bells when they sway in the wind. Do you remember the bells and the t- and the palm trees from earlier? So a sweet, enrapturing sound. When human beings in that world hear this sound, they remember the Buddha. And I think Remember the Buddha would be a translation of Budhanu Sati, Recollection of the Buddha. They remember the Buddha and feel his presence in their whole body. So it's not just the mind, it's the body too. They remember the Dharma and feel its presence in their whole body. And they remember the Sangha and they feel its presence in their whole body. I just think this is Fantastic. It's wonderful just to think of meditation and when you're contemplating these things, when you're recollecting the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, it's not just a head exercise. It's something that we do with the whole of ourselves and we allow it to permeate through into the whole of our body. Now, the Pure Land, the Pure Land of Amitabha called Sukhavati, is a long, long way away depending on which sutra you read or even which translation of which sutra it's said to be a hundred thousand million or a hundred million or a hundred thousand trillion million buddha fields to the west how large is a buddha field? well perhaps it's the size of a galaxy or the universe something like that in other words the pure land is an unimaginably long way away but the pure land is boundless so in a way it doesn't matter how long away it is if it's boundless it has no boundaries then it's here isn't it it's here and it goes on right to the east it just goes on forever and ever And the beings in that Buddha field are so many in number remember they're limitless there's no limit to the number that they spread out from the Pure Land to here and beyond. Endlessly. So in fact the beings in the Pure Land aren't a long long way over there well they are but they're also here. They're all around us. So here's something that you can do in your meditation. You can recollect the sangha they're just all around this these wonderful beings pure beings who are just practicing the dharma like you are and they're all around you so when you're sitting in meditation and you think you're on your own you're in your own room you're actually completely surrounded by beings but more than that these beings are absolutely huge For example, Avalokiteshvara, one of the Bodhisattvas in the Pure Land, he is 80 kotis of Nayutas, of Yojinas, multiplied by the (coughs) numbers of grains of sand in the Ganges River. Okay, so let's look at that, shall we? A Yojana, how long is a Yojana? A Yojana is the distance a royal army could march in a day. So between seven to nine miles. None of these None of these categories are very exact. So between seven and nine miles. A niuta is a very high number, anything from 10 million to 100 billion. A koti is another very high number, 10 million. <coughs> so um, I'll just tell you again, 80 koti's naiyutas of yojinas multiplied by the numbers of grains of sand. In other words, <laughs> he's bigger than our universe. Right? So these beings are not only limitless in numbers, they're limitless in size, they're unimaginably large. Admittedly, Avalokitesha is bigger than many of the other bodhisattvas. So, try to imagine, try to imagine all those beings around us. In front of us, behind, to our left, to our right, up above us, below us. All highly advanced spiritual beings, all irreversible from enlightenment. Feel them in your body. Actually, it's not so much a matter of feeling them in your body, it's so much as feeling you in their body, isn't it? You're in them, as it were. This is great. There's another tradition, Mahayana tradition. I think it's Verochina. Verochina Buddha is the universe. And we are just living in a tiny pore of his skin, so you're in this kind of buddha body so imagine all these beings as you're practicing and if you were to do that what might happen if you do this i think you would have a shift in identity a shift in your identity so we all have an identity a way of thinking about ourselves that defines us for example, human, we're human, we're not animal, we're not birds, we're not fishes. so we're human, right? So that's an identity, isn't it? Human identity. So once we're human, then are we a man or a woman? So then you, you have a, another sort of um, slightly smaller identity there. And are you old or you're young or you're middle-aged or what? You know, what's, how do you identify yourself? Are you married Single, divorced, heterosexual, homosexual, bisexual. These are all the ways that we identify ourselves and sort of pin ourselves down in the world so that we know who we are. Are you a father? Do you identify yourself as a father or a mother? Or a son or a daughter? Are you employed or are you unemployed? If you're employed, are you a professional? Do you think of yourself as a professional or a tradesman? Do you think of yourself as a teacher, or an accountant, or a manager? Do you think of yourself as unskilled or skilled? Are you a Buddhist? That's an identity, isn't it? Do you identify yourself as a Buddhist? And if so, are you an FWO Buddhist, or an NKT Buddhist, or a Gakkai Buddhist, or, I don't know, a Pure Land Buddhist? If you're an FWO Buddhist, uh, do you identify yourself as a friend or a mitra or a mitra who's asked for ordination or someone who's ordained, a junior order member or a senior order member? There's all these categories which we define ourselves by. And In some ways, having an identity is helpful but ultimately, it's limiting. It's confining. It confines you. It hems you in. It constrains you. It restricts who you really are. So when you become a Buddha, sorry, when you become a Buddhist, <laughs> I can't speak about becoming a Buddha. I haven't had that one yet. You become a son or a daughter of the Buddha. You join the Buddha family. And when you do that, you identify yourself with something much bigger, than the way you normally identify yourself with, I would say. There's a book I've been reading recently called Belief and it's a series of transcribed interviews with people about what they believe. It was a radio series a little while ago. Joan Bakewell did the interviews and it's got some quite interesting ones there. There's one, uh, an interview with the Irish Catholic priest or ex-priest and poet, John Donoghue. And he said... The deepest thing in individuality is actually the divine presence. To put it into colloquial terms and loosely, we're like undercover gods and goddesses hanging around in clay form. And sometimes we glimpse it, but mostly it's darkened from us. So the idea is we're not who we think we are. We're something much bigger than who we think we are. We kind of limit ourselves by the labels we apply ourselves, the way we think about ourselves. Sangharakshita had a similar idea a few years ago, and he said, well, mate, Sona was talking about this on Friday, maybe we're actually all bodhisattvas. But we've just forgotten. You know, when we got reborn, reborn this time around, we forgot everything we've been doing for the past so many hundreds of aeons. Or maybe we're stream-entrants. You know, a stream-entrant is someone who's had insight strong enough so that there's only another seven lives and they'll become a Buddha or an enlightened being. And maybe you're a stream-entrant and you're just having an off-life at the moment. (laughs) Just like some of you have off-days, you can have a whole (laughs) off-life. Or maybe you're not having an off-life, you're maybe having a really good life, I don't know. So by becoming a Buddhist... By joining the family, becoming a son or daughter of the Buddha, isn't this simply another identity? Aren't we just swapping one identity for another, you might ask? Isn't it just another way of confining ourselves, restricting ourselves in this label called Buddhism? Well, yes and no. On one level, when you become a Buddhist... um, You become a Buddhist as distinct from a Christian or a Jew or a Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Taoist, Shaman, Animist, Rasta, Fari, Marxist, Atheist, Agnostic, Humanist. So you sort of define yourself against all these other isms, in a sense. But at a deeper level, and I would say this was the real meaning of becoming a Buddhist... You identify not with yourself as a Buddhist as opposed to all these other isms. You identify with the boundless, with the measureless, with the eternal, with the infinite. You identify with that which actually has no identity, which has no boundary. As I said earlier, amita means unquantifiable, unmeasurable, unmeasurable not because it's too big to be measured, but because it simply doesn't fit into any categories. It's uncategorizable, it's unclassifiable. Form is only emptiness, and emptiness is only form. And this brings me to the third meaning of uh, the boundless assembly in Sukhavati. And this is my interpretation (coughs) here, so from now on in, this is my own way of thinking about it the beings there are boundless not because there are millions and trillions and quadrillions of them and not because they're absolutely massive in size but because they have no boundaries they have no edges they have no circumferences there's no boundary between them there's no boundary between one being and another there's no boundary in the pure land between self and other that limiting confining painful way of experiencing life as being separate bounded by self simply doesn't obtain in the sukhavati in the pure land and to explore this idea I'm going to look in a bit more detail at the beings in sukhavati And I'm going to look at another section from the Sukhavati Sutra, a section called the Bodhisattvas in Sukhavati, which is a detailed account of the beings, the Bodhisattvas, their attainments and qualities. And dwelling on this section is another way of contemplating the Sangha, the ideal Sangha. It depicts the ideal Sangha. Now this section is in 21 paragraphs. Each paragraph is numbered in the sutra. Uh, it, comes, it starts at paragraph 100 and goes up to 121. And it's over three pages long. So there's no time for me to go into it all in detail. It takes far too long, um, hundreds of millions of minutes. So I'm just going to look at a theme that runs through this section. Interestingly, the first nine paragraphs of this section are explicitly about the Bodhisattvas. In other words, it says, the Bodhisattvas in this land are like this. The Bodhisattvas in this land are like that. Then it changes inexplicably. It doesn't say why it changes. Um, From paragraph 110, instead of saying Bodhisattvas, it says, the living beings in Sukhavati are like this, are like that. And it doesn't say why. So I don't quite know what the significance is, but when you look at it, the first ten paragraphs describing the bodhisattvas, they're very magical qualities. For instance, the bodhisattvas each have a halo of light 100,000 million leagues wide. They can travel to other world systems and there wait on numberless hundreds of thousands of millions of Buddhas and so on. It's all kind of magical But when it gets to paragraph 110, it just starts talking about the living beings. Um, It's much more down to earth. It's much more like they're describing human beings. So I'm just going to go into this, you know, not in very much detail, but I'm going to follow a theme through. So in paragraph 110, it says, And in this Buddha field, living beings have no idea of property. This is an idea that crops up a few times in the sutra. For example, another paragraph, it says, nor is there any conception of the private property of the householder in Sukhavati. So why is this? Well, it's because property, ownership, so easily leads to disputes to conflict, to hostility, and eventually to violence. When you have nothing, you have nothing to protect from others keep thinking, when I say that, I keep thinking of that line. I think it's Bob Dylan, isn't it? When you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose. When you've got nothing, there's nothing to protect. Possessionlessness leads to nonviolence because nothing is yours, so there's nothing to protect. That's why the Buddha, Shakyamuni the Buddha, that is, not Amitabha, left home and lived a homeless life with no possessions apart from his robe and begging bowl. In another Mahayana sutra, the Ratnaguna Samchayagata, my favourite sutra, the idea of homelessness is psychological. The liberated mind has no home. It rests in nothing at all. It has nothing to call its own. It hangs on to nothing. And coming back to this sutra, the Sukhavati Sutra, notice that the text says living beings have no idea of property. They have no conception of property. So no idea, no conception of ownership, of owning things. So it's not that the living beings in the pure land are practising homelessness, possessionlessness, etc. They don't even understand the idea of owning anything. They have no conception of it. Now I don't know how true this is, but when I was younger, boy, um, I learnt that the American Indians, when the Europeans first went over to colonise, the American Indians just didn't understand the idea of owning land. They didn't have the idea, they didn't own land. It's only when the Europeans went over that the idea of ownership of land was came about. Now, I don't know if that's actually the case or not. OK, so no idea of property, private property. And then it says in the same paragraph... When they undertake an activity, they are completely free of ulterior motives. What's an ulterior motive? Well, it's a hidden motive, isn't it? Sometimes nowadays we say a hidden agenda, don't we? Oh, he's got a hidden agenda. It's something secret, (coughs) clandestine, and just a little bit deceitful. When you act with an ulterior motive, you hide the real reasons for your actions, And why would you do that? So that you can get what you want without other people realising that you're trying to get what you want. While seeming to act impartially. So the living beings in the Pure Land don't have ulterior motives because they don't have a conception of private property. And because they don't have a conception of private property, they've got nothing to gain. There's nothing in it for them. So what that means is that they can be completely open and transparent about what they're doing. They don't need to hide their selfishness because they have no self to hide. Okay, going on to paragraph 111. They have no idea of what belongs to others. No idea of what belongs to self. No idea of mine. No conflict no dispute, no contradiction. Well, this just follows on from what I said earlier, didn't it? Except their lack of conception of property is so thoroughgoing, so radical. Not only do they have no idea of their own property, they got no idea of other people owning property either. So it's not that they don't own property, but they think other people do, and that could lead to envy and so on. It just, it's just not in their mind. And because of this there's no conflict, no dispute, no contradiction. In fact, it goes on to say, their thoughts are impartial, benevolent, friendly, tender, affectionate, pliable, serene, firm, free from hindrances, undisturbed, imperturbable. Paragraph 113. Their knowledge is nowhere held back by attachment. This is very interesting, I think. When we own something, we, become, we tend to become attached to it, don't we? To become attached is to become emotionally dependent. When you're emotionally dependent on something, your sense of well being depends on it. So that If it looks like you might lose that thing, you begin to feel insecure. And if you do lose it, you then feel unhappy, even perhaps devastated. You know, that feeling of loss, the feeling of you've been emptied out completely. This attachment to things prevents us from seeing things as they really are. It inhibits our ability to really understand the world. Because to understand, we need to stop seeing things from our own particular point of view and what we get from it. Uh, It means to stop identifying with this person, this place, this point of view. So, without attachments, with no attachments, this conduces to the development of wisdom. So their knowledge is nowhere held back by attachment. They are in possession of the knowledge that all things are unattainable. I really like this because it's a very nice play on words. I don't know if you get the same play on words in the Sanskrit, the original, but in English it's a very nice play on words. To attain means to reach, to arrive at by continuous effort. But it also means to come into possession of, to possess. So just to quote this again, the living beings in the Pure Land are in possession of the knowledge that all things are unattainable or unpossessable. So you're possessing this knowledge but you realise that nothing can be possessed. So you're not re- you can't really possess wisdom and knowledge, you can't even possess that. Their possession of understanding is not really a possession at all, it's a way of being without possessions. Paragraph 114. Their field of knowledge and action is the ungraspable. They possess nothing. Free from grasping, free from worry, free from turmoil. They are free from clinging and are perfectly liberated. Then a bit later on it says They have ascended to the gate of knowledge of Buddhas. So difficult to comprehend, they have found the narrow path I really like this too they have found the narrow path this is in a text which so values boundlessness limitlessness wide open spaces they have found the narrow path to wisdom so to become free to enter this limitless realm we first need to commit ourselves to the path that leads to the limitless realm we need to commit ourselves to, for instance, behaving skillfully. We need to curb our appetites. We need to inhibit our selfish desires. So the path to ultimate freedom seems, to those who aren't following that path, perhaps restricting and constricting and narrow. But actually, it leads to limitlessness. Paragraph 116. They are like the earth because they bear patiently both the good and the evil in the deeds of all beings. They are like water, because they cleanse and wash away the taints of all the afflictions of the mind. They are like fire, because they consume the affliction of pride with respect to all beings. They are like wind, because they do not cling to anything in the world. They are like empty space, because they pervade all things, yet nowhere take hold of anything. The next paragraph is interesting because it takes this idea just a bit further they are like the sky because they cultivate boundless benevolence so boundlessness means love or metta because there's no holding oneself back there's no sense of a separate self to withhold from others there's no self to look after to protect from others in fact there are no boundaries at all love means no boundaries so in the metta sutta one of the oldest of the buddhist texts it says let his or her thoughts of boundless love pervade the whole world above below across without any obstruction without any hatred without any enmity so boundlessness is love they are full of patience and tenderness They are free of animosity. They have put hardness of heart to rest. That's a lovely phrase, isn't it? Hardness of heart. A heart with a hard boundary wall, unpenetrable. They've put that to rest. It's no longer there. There's no war surrounding their heart, protecting them anymore. They are not greedy. They delight in sharing. They are generous, open-handed. They delight in distributing gifts. They are not niggardly, giving both material gifts and the gift of the dharma so that's the section i wanted to read out to you so it's really a depiction of sangha the ideal sangha and bear, just bearing in mind what i said earlier about the nature of the language of the sutra that it's not descriptive but transformative who knows if these beings really exist it doesn't matter It's not descriptive, it's transformative. By reflecting on these qualities, you become them. They enter into your mind, they enter into your body and you become boundless. So if we can give ourselves up to this sutra, if we can surrender ourselves to it, we can become these living beings. Or perhaps we realise that we are these living beings and always have been. These living beings. Perhaps we will really recognize that our true nature is boundless, limitless, measureless, infinite, eternal. Perhaps faith, Shraddha, is our response to the boundless, the limitless, the measureless, the infinite, the eternal. The nature of the sangha is boundless, limitless, measureless, infinite, eternal. So if we can just let go of our small, restricting, confining identities, we might be able to enter the pure land. We might be able to realise boundless sangha.